0: Uh, hello everyone, uh, we have a couple of Bible readings this morning, and you can follow along on the screen once it's ready. So the first one is from uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. (laughs) About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day, all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So in those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave, to, I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Uh, The second Bible reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles.
1: Well, um, hello, everyone. Hello, yes, just checking everyone's awake. Uh, it is great to see you here. Um, I, the last time I was here was back in March, and uh, the, I was doing a series, you might recall, on Matthew, and the first three talks in the series We're all here, and then after that, I think no one's seen each other for a while since. So I'm really pleased, actually, that I can be here today with you guys back in person. Um, As uh, Luke said, I'm not actually a member of this church. I'm a member of um, Trinity Church Adelaide in at the CBD. Um, If we've not met before, then, uh, as Luke said, I'm one of the pastors there. It's uh, great to meet you, and I look forward to meeting you afterwards, hopefully, um, I was going to say over coffee, over virtual coffee afterwards. Um, But uh, it's a good reminder, actually, that here at Trinity, we're part of a network of churches, Uh, And the opportunity to be able to encourage each other and, uh, I guess, to uh, serve and to be alongside each other in these very strange times is a real privilege. Why don't I pray for us and then we'll get into the series uh, for the next few weeks. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. We pray this morning as we turn to it that you might uh, remind us once again of why you are worthy of all our praise. Amen. Well, um, I know you won 't given handouts, but i 'd really encourage you to have in front of you the outline from the hub that uh, Luke spoke about before on your tablet or phone. Um, this is the kind of series that you will find hard to follow along if you can 't see the notes that I've provided and i 've given you extensive notes, mostly so that it will help you track what we 're working through and also give you things to follow up after. So please do have that there in front of you, and if you don 't this week, do make sure you do in the weeks after. Um, It's a series on what's called the Doctrine of Election, or as it says on the screen behind me, Chosen, the idea that God chooses us. And uh, I want to begin by acknowledging that this series is going to be very hard to hear for some of us. This series is going to be very hard to hear for some of us. So the Doctrine of Election is that God chooses some people to be saved, but not everybody. God chooses some people to be saved, but not everybody. Uh, And instinctively... Just me saying that, I know, sounds unfair. It sounds discriminatory. Uh, To use the buzzword for our day, it sounds non-inclusive. And if you're here today someone who's a visitor, perhaps you've connected with this church during the online season and you've come along in person to check out what it's all about, my guess is for me to begin a talk with this assertion, well, it hardly paints God in a positive light. I realise that. I was talking to uh, my teenage children recently, and I was telling them about this series and what it was going to be about, and um, here's what one of them said, I won't tell you which one, but um, here's what he said, Um, he said, um, oh sorry, I've only got one son, for those who know, Uh, now look, just bear in mind, you know, sort of smart-alecky teenager boy, here's what he said, when I told him what it was about, he said, oh, that will be a little ray of sunshine. Well, actually, as Luke alluded to, this talk is really one long talk broken into three parts, uh, moving from the less to the more controversial, moving from the less controversial to the more controversial over the three weeks. Now, I've done that for a couple of reasons. One is it's a cunning way to make sure you keep coming back. Um, So if you miss a week, do listen online afterwards. Uh, But each week, what we're going to do is follow a similar kind of structure. And you'll see that from that outline, hopefully, that you have in front of you. Each week, a big idea... Then some questions that that raises. And finally, because there's a risk that this series might sound a little bit intellectual, every week we're going to talk about how we might respond, what it means for us on the ground in the week ahead. If you look at the talk titles that are at the top of the handout, this week, The Potter and the Clay, God's Unfettered Sovereignty. Next week, There Is No Unrighteous, Not Even One, Our Total Depravity. And then finally, Chosen Before the Creation of the World, God's Supreme Mercy. You'll see from the talk titles that in this series I'm planning to spend twice as much time talking about God as I do about us. Twice as much time talking about God as I do about us, which I figure is about the right balance for a series that's on the character of God. Our final thing to say just as we get into it is, uh, and again, to point out the obvious, this is particularly for the members of this church, but if you're new to us, uh, it's worth me saying this, this is not the normal kind of series that we do in a Trinity Network church. Uh, Not so much for the topic, but for the way in which we're going to do it. So normally in a Trinity Network Church, what we do is we just open a passage of the Bible and we work our way through a book of the Bible over successive weeks, as you've been doing here in Exodus. Um, That's not what we're going to do in this series. For three weeks, rather than work through one passage, we're going to see what the Bible as a whole has to say on a topic. Now to help that, I'm actually going to use a number of theological terms along the way. Um, That's so that... If the ideas that are raised are ones that you want to follow up on, you can actually pick up the many great Christian books on the topic and you'll understand what they're talking about. And each week, as Luke's alluded to, we'll have Q&A. We've got a bit of space and time for that this morning. Um, We want to have Q&A at the end of the talk so that, um, as you'll see on the top of your outline, as I keep urging you, you want to be like the Bereans. You want to be like the Bereans? That's a reference to Acts chapter 17, verse 11, printed there on your outline. Uh, The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and here's why they are of noble character. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And my point is that if they test an apostle against the Word of God, how much more so do you need to a pastor? So we'll have Q&A at the end of each talk. Well, enough by way of introduction. Let's get into it. Point one, the big idea for today. Let me lead lead off with it, and it's the starting point for this whole series on thinking about election. There's a blank for you to fill in on your outline if you can on a tablet. Sorry about that. I don't think that's possible, but you'll get the point. Here's the big idea. The creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. The Creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. Our thanks to Shannon for bringing both of those readings for us. We're going to dig into Romans chapter 9 in much more detail in week 3 because it's actually the key passage on this doctrine of election. But today I want to focus just on two verses, which I've printed there on your outline, verses 20 and 21. Romans chapter 9. Let me read them again. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. Um, I have called this talk God's unfettered sovereignty. God's unfettered sovereignty. Now that's old fashioned language. A uh, sovereign, of course, is the former word that was applied to a monarch. A monarch who has absolute power over his or her realm. Where we begin this series is with the big idea that the creator is therefore entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. The creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. It's actually the language of right, entitlement, right. It's more than just saying the creator is allowed to or the creator is at a liberty to. It's saying the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants because he's made everything And of the many passages in Scripture that could demonstrate that point, well, the one that we've just seen is perhaps the most blunt and direct. It's saying that a potter has the right to use some clay for special purposes, like making grand sculptures, and the potter has the right to use some pottery for common uses, some clay for common uses, like functional kitchenware. but different plans for different bits of clay cast no moral aspersion on the potter's character. Now let me give you a superficial example that will try and make this point because with very rare exception, most of us aren't potters here. Consider what people will do with Lego. 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 Now, first things, uh, first, I'm not from South Australia, so I don't call it Lego. For the record, neither does anyone else, not even the Danish. So I reckon that gives you a hint there, it's actually Lego. Now, here's my point. When you're given a new box of Lego, some people, when they open the box, what they do is they choose to meticulously follow the instructions from start to finish, right? Now, I'm gonna, I am going gonna—I could ask for a show of hands as to who does that, right? You know, some of us are like that. We are the right people. No, <laughs> that's not
0: true.
1: <clears throat> there are some of us like that. Others, of course, well, let's call them the free spirits. <laughs> and for those of us, yeah, anyway, let's look it. Now, you get the point that I'm making here, right? When it comes to Lego, whether you follow the instructions or you just let your imagination run wild, it doesn't make you into a good or a bad person. You're entitled to do whatever you want with it. Now, of course, this is a somewhat limited illustration because even if we own the Lego, you didn't make the Lego in the first place. So I get that that's not quite the same illustration that's been given in Romans chapter 9. And of course, I realise that calling God a potter and you and I clay, or well, basically, it's likening us to lumps of rock. And that doesn't feel like a particularly high view of humanity, does it? Are we no more than puppets on a string, dancing to the puppet master's tune? Are we no more than actors in a play who are reading out predetermined lines? Well, those are fair questions to ask. They're fair questions because they ask about the extent to which we ought to be held accountable for our actions if God has made us in a particular way. And we'll return to those ideas in later weeks. But for now, for today, I simply want to ask what's the alternative to God being completely unfettered in his sovereignty? What's the alternative to God having complete control of all that he has made? See if he doesn't it would make him subject to something or someone else. By which very definition he would no longer be sovereign. It seems to me that, at least in my opinion, there's very little point in me worshipping a mostly powerful deity. Very little point in worshipping a mostly powerful de- deity. Let me give you a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, if you're going to invoke a god, if you're going to call on a god, you want that god to be powerful, uh, preferably all-powerful. I mean, who wants to call on a second-string minor deity? Think, for example, of the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods, like Zeus and Apollo, constantly jostling for supremacy. But much more importantly, if you're going to give your life in service to a god, you want that god to be supreme. You want to know that, to put it really crudely, You've thrown your lot in with the winning team. You want to know that his will will be done, that his kingdom will come and that his name will be hallowed throughout all the earth. Well, let me take that idea and put it slightly more positively. Why did this all-powerful God choose to make us then? Why did this all-powerful God choose to make us well see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse ten, printed on your outline. Ephesians chapter two, verse ten. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Actually that's a pretty extraordinary way to refer to humanity, isn't it? To be called God's handiwork not just clay in the potter's hands, but his very handiwork. Because what Paul is saying is that being made by God, being made by an all-powerful God means we have been fashioned for a purpose. We've been made for good works and that's so much a better alternative than what the world has to offer in terms of explaining why you and I are here. See, all the world can say is that we are progressive updates on previous versions Mankind. Well, um, I'm not naive, right? I get that even if God is all powerful and has a purpose for our lives, we're still going to have to address the question of our choices and whether we should bear responsibility for our actions. As I said, we'll come to that in subsequent weeks, but can I say at this point, if I am accountable for my decisions, if my salvation is up to me, then I for one actually think that I'm in trouble because my track record demonstrates that I consistently make poor choices. Actually, I think I'd prefer that the buck did not stop with me, that it stopped with someone else. And ideally, that it stopped with someone who is powerful, predictable, and preferably good. Of course, the difficulty for us is that unconstrained power in our world is so often misused that we find it almost impossible to imagine absolute power not corrupting absolutely. And so, of course, this raises serious questions about God's character. So let me move then to point two and a couple of questions to consider about the character of God. First question, so is God arbitrary? Is God arbitrary? How does God decide which lumps of clay he'll use for special purposes and which ones for common use? But Is there any rhyme or reason to his choice? Or worse, does God just make decisions on a whim? Because you know, he feels like it. I imagine, to give you a different illustration, I imagine that the most terrifying aspect aspect of working for a dictatorial megalomaniac, you know, like Kim Jong-un or Mugabe or Pol Pot from the past or any of the myriad of genocidal, maniac, genocidal maniacs that have littered history, I imagine the, the worst part about working for them is their unpredictability, their tendency to just fly off the handle and change their mind without warning. That unpredictability is what makes them dangerous, untrustworthy. So how does God make choices? Is he arbitrary? Well, let me give you two assurances about how God chooses to exercise his unfettered sovereignty. Two assurances. Firstly, here's the blank for you to fill in. God Is always constrained by his promises. God is always constrained by his promises. What I'm saying is that God is predictable and faithful. But he's not faithful to some external standard or some higher power. There is none higher than him. What he is faithful to is himself, to his promises. He is always bound by His Word. And that means that for you and I, we can be 100% confident that our all powerful Creator is never capricious or corruptible. He's not prone to mood swings or bad days. He is entirely and in every way trustworthy because He's faithful to His promises. A passage that I've chosen just to demonstrate that point comes from Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9, printed on your outline. Let me read it out. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. From the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now Moses is speaking to the Israelites. Uh, They're on the edge of the promised land that God is taking them to after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. Do you notice what he says to them about why they can have confidence in what God is like? Moses is telling this generation that God has chosen them. Why? Because he made a promise to their ancestors. And this is a God who keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, Interestingly, there's even a hint there at the interplay between God's sovereign choice and our accountability for our response. And we'll come to that in week three. Of course, if you're reading that passage carefully, you'll have noticed that it doesn't answer the question, why did God choose their ancestors in the first place? It's just saying to this generation... God loves you because he chose your ancestors. It doesn't say why he chose his ancestors in the first place. Although there was a little hint. There was a hint, I think, in verse 7. See, the hint in verse 7 is that the Israelites are less numerous than other peoples. Less numerous than other peoples. I think the hint here is that God doesn't just choose the impressive, the powerful, the significant, the mighty, the strong? That's actually my second comment. So my second comment, and it's the blank at the top of the next side of the outline. God is always constrained by his promises, was the first thing. The second thing, God tends to choose unexpectedly. God tends to choose unexpectedly. As you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we come to Paul's deeply comforting words, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, printed there on your outline. Just have a look at it with me for a few verses from verses 26 to 28. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. That's an important passage because it tells us something critical about us. It tells us something critical about us. It says there is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. Uh, that's an important idea we'll flesh out next week. But much more importantly, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us something important about God. About God. And this actually is deeply comforting. Because what Paul is saying is that by unexpectedly choosing weak things, not the high achievers, Paul is assuring us that God leans towards mercy. Mercy not rewarding merit. God always leans towards mercy, not rewarding merit. Paul is telling us that God longs to help those who cannot help themselves. Not those who can, because they usually don't bother asking. And in so doing, God not only removes any charge of nepotism, or favoritism, you know, as if God, he only picks the impressive. You know, remember if you will, if you can, that awful moment in high school PE classes, you know, where you're all lined up, there's two captains, they each choose, and what you're desperately hoping is that you won't be the last person selected, because that's proof you're the least impressive out of anyone in the class. Thankfully, God doesn't work that way. One Corinthians one confirms that With God, everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome if only we come with open hands asking for help. Ultimately, the reason why this all-powerful creator chooses us is not because he needs us in any way, but because we so desperately need him. Let me just ask you, have you ever considered how wonderfully reassuring it is that God has no need for anything you might offer Him? How wonderfully assuring it is to know that God has no need for anything that you might offer Him? Now, understand it's a bit of a blow to your pride and to our ego. But if God is not needy in any way, if He is complete in Himself if he is totally satisfied in himself, if he is utterly secure about himself because he lacks nothing, then you can be completely certain that if he chooses you, he hasn't chosen you because he's depending on you, that is a terrible burden to have to bear. No, the only reason he's chosen you is because he loves you and because he longs to bless you. Uh, To return to that earlier question, why would the all-powerful Creator make us in the first place? Well, the answer is, it's to bless us and to share with us what is His by right. Again, to use a parallel or an illustration that admittedly is limited but I think is insightful, the best reason to have or adopt children Is because you want to share with them what is yours. You don't do it to further your own interests or to fulfill your own dreams. Heaven help any child with parents like that. This is, I think, a picture of a kind of God that I can worship, that I can adore. It's a picture of a God who is all-powerful, unfettered in sovereignty, who nevertheless leans towards mercy and not rewarding merit. And that's why I think the first Bible reading that we had, the parable that Jesus tells of the workers in the vineyard, that's why it's so wonderful. Because of what it tells us about what God is like. You remember how the story went, right? A guy recruits labor throughout the day, they all work for different lengths, but he pays them the exact same amount at the end of the day. And when he's challenged by those who feel like they've been ripped off because they worked the longest and got the same as those who worked the least, look at what he says, Matthew 20 verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the power of the story that Jesus is telling is that it poses a cutting diagnostic question. It asks a question of you and me. It asks, with which of the workers do you most resonate in that story? With which of the workers do you most resonate? Now, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands because it would be too embarrassing, but of course, everyone in this room at this point is going to put up their hand and say, I resonate with the ones who got shortchanged. They worked all day long and they got the same amount as the bloke who came in at the very end. All of us feel like, yeah, I feel exactly like those who put in the hard slog and didn't appear to be rewarded. The diagnostic question is, if you think that way of this story, it will shape the way you think about God. As if somehow he is miserly or stingy towards us. When in fact the whole point of the story is that it's meant to be about God's unexpected generosity. Generosity. See, the Creator is entitled to do whatever He wants with His creation. So what does He do? What does He long to do? Answer, He longs to bless us. Because He's a God who leans towards mercy. Okay, well, I've gone on for a bit. A big idea, some questions that it raises. Let me finish very briefly then with how might we respond. What difference does this make for us tomorrow? Well, the short answer here, and one final blank for you to fill in, we are to praise our Creator. We are to praise our Creator. So, what I've tried to show today is that the God who is unfettered in sovereignty chooses to bless us. And that means that our response, I think, is that, well, this is a God who is worthy of all praise. This is a God who is worthy of his name being magnified throughout the universe. And most of you know that I spend most of my time actually working with university students. And uh, my observation is that uh, the students who actually make something in their degrees, they instinctively understand this idea of praising a maker. So I think, for example, all the engineering students I work with, in their final year, they have a project where they have to actually create something. Or I think of the design students who are constantly coming up with new ideas, or the composers who are putting together uh, pieces of music that people have never heard before. They understand that it is right for a maker to be praised. And actually, well, the rest of us, you know, the lawyers, the accountants, the consultants, we instinctively get what they're talking about because what do they all talk about? I was a lawyer once upon a time and a consultant we all talk about adding value as if that would be something that is worthy of praise. It is right to admire the work of your hands. A job well done in the garden, a home renovation when it's finally completed after years of pain. It is right to admire the work of your hands Just as when you behold something wonderfully made, it is right to praise the maker. It is right that when a skyscraper is unveiled, that the architect is honoured for the design. So to Revelation chapter 4, printed there on your outline. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. I I thought I'd ask you this morning if the idea of never-ending praise of God to be honest, just sounds a little bit boring, now, of never-ending praise of God. I mean, do you worry that when you read passages like Revelation 4, that all that kind of falling down and worshipping worshiping God might get a little bit tedious at some point, as if constantly going, you know, holy, 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 holy. You know, maybe after 10,000 years, well, maybe, maybe do you worry that it'll be kind of like the Mexican wave? Come on, enough's enough, right? Well, I'm going to ask you then, if you will imagine the experience of, and this is going to be a bit rude, but imagine the experience of winning a premiership flag. (laughs) Now, I'm not from South Australia, uh, so quite frankly, you'll never know what that means. But, um, (laughs) harsh but fair, trust me, it's going to end up the same way as it always does. But imagine finally, if a South Australian team finally won a premiership, imagine the never-ending celebrations, or more to the point, the fact that at that point, it's not just the team who celebrates, but even their fans. That's why we say we won, even though we had nothing to do with it. How do you apply praise in your life? How do you apply praise of our maker in our life? Well, at the bottom of your outline, I've given you a discussion question. I've asked you, as you go from here, to reflect what might you praise God for? What might you praise God for? And I'll give you a hint at this point. In answering that question, please do your very best to resist the temptation to think about all the things you desire but don't have. Resist the temptation to think about things you desire but don't have. Instead, start by praising God for what He has made us for. We are His handiwork. We have been created to do good works that he has prepared for us in advance to do. And I don't know about you, but I for one can't wait to do them. So here's my final thought. Not only did God make us to share in his glory, not only did he prepare good works in advance for us to do, this for me is the most praiseworthy aspect of our God. You see, even when we turned away from our Creator, even when we rejected him, even when we told him to leave us alone, still, he remade us. He refashioned us. He rebirthed us in Christ. What an awesome God. What a merciful God he is. Let me finish with 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy you chose to make us, even when we had no right to expect it. But more importantly, we thank you that you have poured out on us your extraordinary mercy and compassion Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for what you have done through him in us. We pray that each day you might help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him and to live in a way that accords him and affords him the honour and glory that he deserves. Amen.